This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Vincent Evener, Associate Professor of Reformation and Luther Studies at the United Lutheran Seminary in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to talk about his new book, Enemies of the Cross, Suffering, Truth, and Mysticism in the Early Reformation, out this year, 2021, with Oxford University Press. Hello, Vincent. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited about this talk. How is uh, how's my beloved Pennsylvania right now? How's it doing? It's a beautiful time to be in PA. Pennsylvania is 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 doing well, hanging in there, I suppose. Um, I should I should say United Lutheran Seminary is both Gettysburg and Philadelphia. I am, ah. my office is on the Gettysburg campus. Oh, okay. We are right. hence hence the United. We are the result of a recent merger of two seminaries, two Lutheran seminaries. Oh, good to know. I didn't know about that. Um, ah, Gettysburg. I don't know if I would rather be in Gettysburg or Philly. Gettysburg's beautiful. Gettysburg is beautiful. Gettysburg is beautiful. Philadelphia is wonderful as well. They both have their own um, unique charms, unique cultures. So, yeah, Philly doesn't get enough love. It's a good city. It is the city of brotherly love. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, all right. So um, look, taking a look at your CV, this book is just really clearly right in your wheelhouse. You're the author of uh, several articles on Luther and the Reformation, kind of more generally. You're the co-editor of Protestants and Mysticism in Reformation Europe. That's Brill 2018. And um, you're the director of your seminary's annual Luther Colloquy. So, um, you know, this, this makes sense, but I want to know what brought you to do this particularly. How did you come to write this book? That's a good. That's a good question. I actually, I, I, um, you know, this this book is part of what shaped my wheelhouse. That's why I. That's why I hesitate. Um, so, so it's not that I had all those interests and then I said, oh well, this is the next natural step. Really, in many ways, this was the, the first step. And and as a book tends to do, feels like a project that's been with me for a long time. I think my initial interest really was in. Um, radical Christianity, actually, not what Luther is usually associated with, um, but but the Radical Reformation was was an early interest of mine, and more broadly, the the idea of a Christianity that really repudiates the the status quo, um, that represents a really different way of thinking and living. I was very interested in Christian pacifism, although at the end of the day, um, I. 
these authors don't qualify as pacifist. Um, but, but, and, you know, so, so how do you get a vision for, for an entirely different way of, of worshiping God and living among your neighbors? Where does that vision come from? And really, how do you sustain it? And that's where suffering comes into the picture, because it's, it's very clear that if you are going to repudiate the ways of the world, I guess if you want to put it in those terms, that you're going to have to suffer for it. And so that's really where the interest in suffering comes from. Where do you get the discipline? Where do you get the, the strength to suffer? That was my initial interest in coming to this project. And the, the, originally the project was going to be about Thomas Munzer and the Anabaptists. But my, uh, my, my advisor, Dr. Susan Schreiner, in, insisted that I, that I write on Luther and Karlstadt. Um, and, and what I quickly discovered was really interesting that as much as, and this initial point won't surprise specialists, but as much as one of the things that Thomas Munzer, who's a radical, he's a radical preacher, eventually becomes, eventually joins up with the Peasants' Rebellion in 1525, which Luther rejects as, as an effort to overturn the God-given order of society. Um, one of the things that Munzer constantly said at Luther was, well, you're not willing to suffer. You're not willing to suffer. You, you, don't, you won't bear the cross. And what I quickly realized is that Luther won't cede that point, which is kind of surprising because he should say, and, and at one point he kind of does say, okay, Thomas, shut up about your suffering. Suffering doesn't save you. We're saved by faith, not works. You know, so just enough. It's not about suffering. But he almost never says that. He almost never says that. He throws it right back and says, you don't understand what true suffering is. And, and so that led me to, to yeah, that sort, of, that sort of started me down the road and thinking about where do these arguments come from and how do they play out? And I'm really interested in this, this concept of suffering and why it's so important. This is, I mean, you know, and in some ways I thought that would be my last question, but let's just get into that right now. Like, what do we, what, what's it, why is suffering so important? Um, I, I, I think, of course, there's a, um, there's a sort of, uh, you know, answer to that question that's grounded in, in universal human experience. I, I guess uh, one, one, as a contextualist, I'm always uh, hesitant about using the word universal. Um, <laughs> but of, of course, you know, we suffer. We, we die. And, and um, you know, I don't want to say that all of religion is an answer to the problem of death. But clearly, you know, there, there's, that's something that, that faith um, in, in, in the Christian tradition addresses. That, that, that said... Um, I think there's a little, there's, there's more going on here. There's more going on here. And it, it goes back to a shared understanding of the human problem, a shared understanding of the human problem that for Luther, Karlstadt and Munzer, these, these, these three reformers, um, they, in the 16th century, their problem with the church is not that the church, you know, is, is corrupt, or the papacy is claiming too much power. They'll say that. Um, the church has become too worldly. The monks have become lazy. They'll say that. Um, that's not really what it's about. They think the church is fundamentally deceived in the way that it understands 
God, salvation. The church has been just fundamentally wrong. And why it's wrong is goes back to what, in their view, is, is the human problem, and that's self-assertion. That we ourselves are unable to grasp truth, again, about God and salvation is their first question, and what Christian life should be like. We're unable to grasp truth because we get in the way. We get in the way, and we, we make the truth what we want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so, so that common understanding of self-assertion, right, and self-assertion is what needs to be you know, destroyed here if anybody is going to get the truth. So the three figures I study, um, Luther, Karlstadt, and Munzer, all agree on that. And Okay. So, I mean, suffering the annihilate, like the, the doing away, not just with like pleasure, but with self, like? <laughs> it, the people I study, um, I, I think have a different, you know, they all have a different take on that. So you mentioned pleasure. That is very important to to Thomas Munzer. In the, what I'm saying, you know, in, in terms of the larger point that we have these three reformers who become competitors, but they're actually drawing from the same mystical source. Sources, I should say, plural. Specifically, the 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 mystical tradition that's shaped by by Meister Eckhart, who dies at the beginning of the 14th century, and and for Eckhartian mysticism, yeah, self is the problem. The self, insofar as it it it, it has a separate existence from God. The goal of mystical practice is to. <laughs> is to attain a consciousness of when you were a self only in God's mind, if that makes sense. So the language of annihilation of self does come in there. Mm -hmm. Um, That this, that you're, you're, you know, you're, you're to recognize your own nothingness. You're created out of nothing by God and return to that, that moment when you were an idea in God's mind. So you recognize your nothingness and you return to the, nothing that that is god right and god here is nothing right no thing god is completely other than um creation so that annihilation of self is in there the reformers don't none of the three reformers really sort of run with that um in its deepest meaning i think um for luther it's really about annihilation of trust in yourself right um, thinking that you yourself can earn salvation mm-hmm. for for um, for Andreas Karlstadt, he's much he stays much closer to the the mystical tradition. For him, it's about still really focused on your your self will on what you want that's different than God. And for Munzer, yeah, pleasure is a big part of it. Pleasure is a big part of it. We desire temporal things, and therefore they possess us when we're supposed to be possessed by God. And in, and and so in letting go of pleasure or in um, your so your idea that you can trust yourself or you know kind of your your self will by doing away with these you return to this place where you're able to really know and experience God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I, again, it has a bit of a different. It's a great question. It has a bit of a different character for for each you know each of the figures studied here. For for Eckhart, it's really. A, a, a consciousness of when you existed only as of your pre-created existence as an idea in God's mind. 
Um, that's deep. Um, <laughs> and and for 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 Luther, for Luther, our problem is is trust. That that's that's our problem. That's one of his big breaks with the medieval tradition is that our relationship to God is not so much a matter of do we love God or do we love creatures. It's a matter of do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? Because we have a lot of good reasons not to trust God. You know, you know. See, in his time, it was the plague. Um, in our time, it's coronavirus. Right? There's a lot of good reasons uh, sure. not to trust God. So how can you have trust? So for him. Um, our tendency is to trust in the self or to trust in created things and, and only, you know, faith, faith is trust for him. Only faith is a gift brings you into right relationship. So for, so it really becomes self-trust becomes the problem. All right. So I'm, um, all of our listeners are going to be familiar with Luther. Everybody knows about Luther, right? Quite famous. Um, uh, and I'm guessing that most of our listeners are less familiar with Munzer and Karlstad. Um, and how did you like, tell us about these guys and how, how, uh, how you came to know them. This is work. Is this work you did in graduate school? Yes. 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 That's why I referenced my advisor earlier insisting (laughs) that I write on. Even if we don't talk about our advisors, they're always there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turned out to be, you know, at, 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 at this point I am professor of Luther studies and my initial goal was, was, you know, to, to have a footnote on Luther and talk about Munzer and Karlstadt, but don't don't tell anyone. Um, in any <laughs> no, case, no, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, and Car- uh, and Karlstadt. Um, these were, and uh, uh, I mean, just to, to to maybe sort of go to where square one might be. Um, Luther, you, you know, he he challenges the church. And, and for him, what really gets him into trouble is it's not just about, as I said, you know, the corruption and incompetence of the clergy or papal authority. Well, papal authority actually is, is a big issue that gets him in a lot of trouble. Um, but he really just fundamentally has a different understanding of what the church is and how we're saved. That wipes away so much of what medieval Christians were doing. Um, and, and so he, he, he is this radical challenge. But he finds the support of a prince, and that allows and 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 that allows his his version of reformation to sort of take institutional shape and survive. There are others, including people who emerge from within Luther's own camp, who have different visions of what salvation is about, what the church is about, what Christian life is about. Um, to what extent a reform of the church means a reform of daily social life. Um, right. Well, if we're going to have a reformation, maybe we shouldn't have princes anymore off with their heads. Um, right. And, um, so there's, there's others who have different visions and they don't attain really enduring support of, of political authorities with enough power to ensure that, that their vision, um, comes through. And that applies to Andreas Karlstadt and Thomas Munzer. Andreas Karlstadt is Luther's colleague on the university faculty at Wittenberg. For a time, he's seen as Luther's most public ally, most significant ally for a brief time. Um, he, did, he and Luther together debate John Eck in 1519. Um, and 
then there's this there's this brief period where they're both firing off these short vernacular treatises to stir up support for the reform. So they're using they're using the printing press, but they they part ways. They part ways, in in part because Andreas Karlstadt, while Luther's you know, stashed away at the Wartburg castle to, to, to keep the emperor from, or, or to, to keep him from being arrested, dragged away and executed. He's in hiding. And, and Andreas Karlstadt gradually emerges as, as a leader of reforms in Wittenberg, um, reforms to the way the worship was conducted. Um, he wants images removed from the church. Um, there were some social reforms as well. Um, the the establishment of a common chest to care for those who were in need. Um, And Luther repudiates those reforms as an effort, particularly the reforms to worship, the social reforms he sort of leaves alone, close the brothels, you know, abolish usury, fine. Um, But Luther repudiates those reforms in, in early 1522 by saying that, you know, you you all, th- you all think you're saved because you've you've drugged the statue of Mary out in the street and chopped its arms off and burned it up. Um, you all think you're saved by destroying images. Well, that's no different than the people who thought they were saved by adoring images, right? You're both looking to works. You're not looking to faith that comes from hearing the word, right? So he and and Karlstadt had been a leader in seeking changes to. Uh, the way that the mass was celebrated, right? And Luther says, oh, okay, well, people used to think they were saved because the host was elevated, and now you think you're saved because it's not elevated, right? You're focusing on the external and not on faith. And so they part ways. Eventually, um, Carl, (laughs) everybody's involved. All of Luther's friends are involved in this movement that makes changes, Philip Melanchthon, Justice Jonas. But when Luther comes back from hiding, they all toe the line except Karlstadt. Um, (laughs) And... um, Everybody else says, thank you, Martin, for correcting us. We're sorry. But Karlstadt refuses to do that. And so then he, his, his, his writings are suppressed and he gets out of Dodge. He goes to Orlamunda um, to, to try and implement reform on his own terms, which he's able to do for a few years. And, and then when the Peasants' War comes, nobody likes him and he has to go back to Wittenberg and sort of beg, to, beg for refuge from Luther and eventually he ends up among the Swiss reformers. That's a, I, I, I've probably already talked too long about him, but it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating biography of someone who just never found a, well, he did find a home in, among the Swiss eventually, um, but who really wanders a lot, both like <laughs> physically speaking and in terms of his, 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 you know, he's, he's a, he's a deep theological thinker. And then Thomas Munzer, maybe I'll try to be a little briefer there. Um, Thomas Munzer was a um, was a fiery preacher, a young student who who again, you know, possibly was attracted to to Wittenberg circles by the ninety five theses. Certainly is 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 attracted by Luther's fame, but he's a very fiery preacher. So he immediately he's given a post. <laughs> He, he, he's he's given a post, but he he immediately caught and Luther probably helped with his him to get his first post, but he immediately causes controversy, and it very quickly becomes clear that his view of of salvation is entirely different from Luther's, um, and his under he, he's shaped by Luther, I think, in ways scholarship has missed, 
but then he, you know, so again, the Wittenbergers kind of distance themselves from him. He, like Karlstadt, tries to go to different places, kind of establish reform in his own terms. But he is, he's, yeah, yeah, he, he never is able to succeed long term. Eventually, he decides God is acting through the peasant rebels in 1524, 1525. He joins them and he, he's killed with them. He tells an army at Frankenhausen, you know, don't worry, an army of assembled peasants, you know, don't worry, the prince's bullets won't harm you. And that proved to be wrong. And he, he, he escaped. The thousands were killed that day. He, is, he escapes, but is quickly, he's quickly captured, executed, and then becomes this. Again, we can talk about it later. Um, <laughs> he becomes this interesting figure because in, in, he eventually is held up um, by Marxists and then by East German historiography as this hero of the people. Who, who, you know, theology was secondary. He was actually, you know, early proletarian revolutionary. And so he becomes this political football in, in 20th century, um, in the 20th century world. Yeah, you can still, if you go in the eastern parts of Germany, there's plenty of Thomas Munzer streets and, and gonna, yeah, monuments. That'll, that'll be the next pl- next thing I check out. Fascinating. One of the things, I mean, listening to you talk about this, and one of the things when I was reading the book, and of course, this is no surprise to specialists, what I'm about to say, but I think to the general public, I think it's surprising um, how much that um, the early Reformation, how much that's contested. It's very easy to look at, you know, modern, like mainline Protestantism now and think that we have like that it's clear and it's it's very um you know it, the, the status quo is it, 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 it's hard to imagine the status quo ever not existing right but in fact there is this strong contestation about whether this is going to be you know early on that it's just a reformation of the church that that you know that there will be then a splinter and what the beliefs are going to be and that's something that becomes that comes through really clearly here listening uh, to you talk and reading about these guys yeah yeah, it's 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 a deeply contested, it's a deeply contested event, right? And I, I think one of the things I try to emphasize is, you know, in retrospect, you know, we sort of look back and we say, of course, Karlstadt and Munzer got crushed, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't a it wasn't a foredrawn conclusion at the time. A lot of the people around them wouldn't wouldn't necessarily have foreseen that outcome. Just as we look back and say, of course, the peasants got crushed um, and in tens of thousands were killed. Um, but again, probably in the moment, it doesn't quite seem like that. But it's it's very contested. It's very contested. It, it, it remains... It, it It's very much a political game, is I guess maybe what I'll say. It's very much a political game. In part... The, the forms of reformation that succeed have, you know, have alliances with political authorities and, and they become sort of, you know, I don't want to say international alliances because the Holy Roman Empire is this sort of big, as you know, you know, present day Germany at the time doesn't exist. It's divided up into hundreds of different territories. Um, but those territories that go the Luther route, you know, band together. And those territories that go the Catholic route um, band together, and and reformed Swiss reformed Christianity is very successful in in particular in obviously Swiss territories, right? Mm-hmm. So so the 
a lot of a lot ultimately depends on on whether you can find a, a plausible alliance with political authority. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and, and those who don't remain, you know, what, what is, there've been a lot of different attempts at, at appropriate terminology, but I think still probably the most common is radical reformers. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the forerunners of the Amish and Mennonites, but a lot of other different, you know, spiritualists who thought the outward church was just a fall, um, a fallen thing, right? We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be celebrating a concrete sacrament at all. It all happens inwardly, right? There's all, there's a whole bunch of sort of radicals and, and spiritualists who are out there who never, who kind of are, are persecuted, mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of, you know, are either in hiding or in separate communities, depending on what their theology requires. Right. So I think that's very important to see that, the spiritual discussion is not, I'm not going to say secondary to the political discourse, but the politics and like how, how the success goes. So like, that's one point, how, whether or not you're successful has a lot to do with how you work politically and whether you get protection. So I think that's really important. And then another thing that um, is another kind of theme of this book really is the reminder that the Reformation is not a new, completely, you know, this whole new thing that has never happened before, right? That there are very few ideas that you're going to see in the late 15th and early 16th century that you aren't seeing before, right? That there's this long period of reform before it breaks apart. And so there's, this is one of the places where, you know, you talk a lot about Maester Eckhart, um, who I'm guessing also some many of our listeners won't be familiar with, and this idea of mysticism and an, an internal, like an internal transformation. So I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that connection. Sure. Well, well, just you know, firstly on on you know spiritual versus political. I guess I'll just say very briefly one of my interests in mysticism. Why why be interested in in the um, you know mystic the way that these three reformers who ended up clashing with each other and two of them become radicals and one of them becomes Luther. Um, why, why be interested in their, in their receipt of mysticism? One, I think it profoundly shapes their theology. And, and two, I, I think that we tend to think of mysticism as sort of otherworldly, right? I retreat from the world. I go into a dark room and I have an experience of God that doesn't affect how I am as a social being. And, and I think that's completely untrue. I, I think that when you, when mysticism, if we define mysticism as, um, you know, that take Bernard McGinn, that, that part of Christianity, the mystical element in Christianity is that part which seeks a direct consciousness of God's presence, right? Well, gee, a direct consciousness of God's presence is going to, to constitute you as a political actor. So I don't think there's any turn from mysticism to politics. I think if you are using mysticism and mystical ideas to tell Christians how to be saved and how to encounter God and how to live, you are also simultaneously, inseparably shaping them as political actors. And, and so that's one of my big interests here. In, in terms of the long period of reform, yeah, this is a long period of reform. I'm someone who thinks that something fundamentally different is happening in the 16th century. Um, but, but there, there is, there's long agitation for changes, um, particularly to 
you know, deal with clerical corruption, you know, people who hold two, three offices at one time and ignore all of those offices, um, clergy who aren't well trained. There's long running late medieval debates about papal authority, whether the Pope is really the head of the church or a council of bishops should be the head of the church. So there is a their medieval Christianity is not static. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do, do medievalist friends a, a, a favor here like you should never think of medieval christianity as static it is not um and that's true with striving for reform um one of the things that's happening with mysticism specifically is and meister eckhart's a really interesting figure because he's a scholastic theologian He's doing theology in a university, using scholastic methods of dialectic and disputation, and he's a mystic. He's at least a mystical theologian. I, I'm saying a mystic means I'm making some judgment about his personal experience, which I won't. Um, right? But those two things split. And by the time you get to the anonymous treatise that I that I talk about a lot in the book, the German theology, which Luther reads and publishes it, he gives it the name German theology. It's very anti-scholastic. It's very, and that's part of the reason why it's attractive to Luther, because he's going to say scholastic theology, it's mired in pride, and they've led us wrong, um, because they've defined God according to their pride rather than letting God define God, um, right? And so that mystical inheritance, which is already taken in a lot of in a lot of streams of mysticism, a very anti-scholastic um, bent, is is attractive to him. Um, so 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 that's. That's part of his interest in mysticism. And again, an area where in the late medieval church, there's a lot of motion for change, a lot of a lot of turmoil, um, controversy, different possibilities that this whole thing might go. That makes the late medieval period so exciting. And I think I do think something happens new in the Reformation which is that distinguishes it from late medieval requests quests for reform. What is that? I, I want to know. I began life as a medievalist, uh, full disclosure. Um, so tell me, what what is this new wonderful, like what happens that's different and in, in all new in the 16th century? It's not a happy thing, really. Um, <laughs> you suddenly think your neighbor is the devil. Um, oh. I, I, I think the level of the... the st- and, and, and it's not, I mean, sudden's a strong word, but the division that the idea that we can no longer be reconciled to one another because your Christianity is false. It's fundamentally misled. It's not, you're not just wrong about, you know, relics or indulgences. You, you fundamentally have an idolatrous demonic religion. And that's what Lutherans think of Reformed, and that's what they think of, of Catholic, and that's what everybody thinks of the Anabaptists. And there is a, and what that creates, what some of the work I'm doing now is moving more from this this book that that we're talking about. A lot of it is on controversial literature. I do some work on Luther's sermons a little bit in here. Um, a lot of it's on controversial literature, and and and. But what you see if you move into devotional literature is now the laity need to be taught discernment. Not discernment in the sense of, 
you know, in, in the medieval period, you're supposed to, uh, I, here I, here I speak globally the medieval period, um, in, in many strands of medieval Christianity, um, you're supposed to preserve virtue and avoid vice and you have to, and it's pretty clear what virtue is and what vice is. Eh, you may be, de- you may deceive yourself, right? Like, well, actually what's virtuous is that I go to the bar every Friday night and spend all my family's money. Um, you know, you may deceive yourself about what, you know, which action is virtuous, but you, you actually know what's virtuous and what's vice. Um, and, but in the Reformation, there is a sense that the other side's teaching is seductive, that it's, and, and, and rational. Luther always, you know, rails against reason. Um, what the other side is saying seems true. It seems like Luther will say this. It seems like the doctrine of the 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 that the Spirit comes through the material elements of the sacraments. That seems stupid, right? The other side seems right about this. The papacy seems right when they say that, of course, you know, God gave us a historical institution to decide what's true and what's false and to mediate salvation, right? It seems true. And and every, right? And so that problem that suddenly you're surrounded, you see the Christian as surrounded by false teachings that seem true, and you really need to equip them to understand that, yeah, their opponent is is the devil, Um I, I think there's a, I, I think is is a fundamental, you know, historical periodization is a dangerous thing. There's lots of continuities, um, and and so I don't and I don't deny those at all. Um, but I think there's something, you know, really fundamentally interesting, disruptive. Of course, it's also I, I say you know I said initially it's it's not necessarily a good thing, but as anyone who studies the history of of Christianity knows division over what truth is can also lead to spectacular and interesting creativity. And and so all of that is happening. So. All right. Very good. So the idea that, yeah, this uh, seductive, rational, and I love the idea that, and that is bad. <laughs> that is not okay. Seductive and rational, we do not want. Um, so you'd say you use controversial literature. Tell me about, like, expand a little bit on this and tell me about your sources. What are you consulting here? Um, a number of different things, I, I guess, in terms of, by saying controversial sources, I'm, I'm using a lot of sources that were produced, involved directly in theological argument, particularly when I get to the later part of the book and, you you know, Luther, Karlstadt, and Munzer, for a for time, again, they're, they're allies. Well, they're uneasy allies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Thomas Munzer's on our side, but he, he, he causes a lot of trouble. Can we keep this guy under wraps kind of an ally? Um, and so, but then they start writing against each other. And, and, and a, a big part of the, particularly the later part of the book, fight, focuses on those writings against each other. Um, early on, so 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 I'm reading those. I'm 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 a lot of the the kind of I'm going backwards here. The central part of the book is focused on Flugschriften, um, particularly so works that Luther and Karlstadt and Munzer, although he wasn't very successful as a publicist, um, works that they wrote in order to stir up popular support. 
for for their view of salvation, their view of Christian life, their view of what reform had to happen. So I, I say contra- controversial in the sense that they're intentionally putting forth a program for salvation and the church that that's different from the Roman position. Though, so a lot of printed a lot of printed pamphlets. Are, are, are the focus of this type pamphlets. Again, these are short books of, of, you know, they were cheap for those who aren't Reformation specialists. One of the big things that happens in the Reformation is printers, you know, who, who to that point had produced massive tomes to sell to universities and to clergy, you know, start producing these short, you know, punchy vernacular treatises that are designed to be widely read, sold cheaply, and stir up popular support. That's a big part of what I'm reading in the central part of the book, and then in the at the end of the book, where where um, you know Luther and and Karlstadt turn it against each other. Um, those are my main sources. Uh, some some early some of my earlier chapters. My my first chapter actually works on marginalia. So. One of the ways I'm, if I'm, if I'm going to say that Luther, Karlstadt, and Munzer were deeply shaped by the mystical tradition, one source that we have that survives are Luther's and Karlstadt's, not Munzer's. They were lost. Um, we know they existed, but they were lost. Um, we had their annotations to Johannes Thaler. Thaler was a preacher in, in Strasbourg who was a disciple of Meister Eckhart. We had their annotations to Thaler. And and so I, I I did some work looking at their their annotations in the first chapter to see what themes they were interested in, and and that's where that's where I argue you know that they have a common interest in in human nothingness, mm-hmm. both were nothing as as beings who are created from nothing, and they have a common interest in human nothingness, where nothingness as sinners. So there's a what Toller calls a twofold nothingness. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the idea common interest in us in the idea that we are reduced to nothingness, meaning that through suffering, we come to recognize this twofold nothingness as, as creatures and sinners. And, and yeah, and the, and, and particularly the Eckhartian idea of union, um, where, where the, the person united to God becomes an instrument of God. They have that interest. So, so in the first chapter, they have that shared interest. I'm using, uh, their, their marginalia to toler. And I'm also using the German theology, which was actually Luther's first. Um, Luther's first publication was not something he himself wrote. Um, it, in 1516, he received a anonymous manuscript of an anonymous mystical treatise that came out of this Eckhartian stream, although it has a unique place in it. And he published it in 1516. And then he published it again in 1518 to give it the title German and gave it the title A German Theology. Meaning, not the stupid Roman scholastic theology, but look, um, there has been good theology done in the German vernacular tongue, and there, and and it's this very successful treatise printed twenty times over just a couple of years, and eventually Luther realizes that, contrary to maybe what he initially concluded, it isn't saying what he's saying, and it it sort of becomes. And Stephen Osmond showed this many many years ago in his wonderful book Mysticism and Descent. Um, that that it becomes this real, it, it, it's a fascinating treatise because, you know, mainstream, mainstream, I'll use that term, fraught, um, mainstream Lutherans continue to read it down through the ages. Um, but it also becomes this, this 
this pamphlet that's at the heart of of radical of a lot of radical dissent, particularly in the early Reformation. So. That's yeah, I love that. Uh, that's, that's something you do here that's really cool is the use of these kind of uh, these sources that really contrast and complement one another, right? So you have the theologians kind of talking to themselves, talking to the past, talking to whomever, you know, and then you have this literature that's really meant to be persuasive, like rhetorically solid, very exciting, but still very technical as opposed to what you get in sermons sometimes, which is like fun, you know, and like, ah, so you have these, you can see different voices emerge from the same theologian, Mm -hmm. um, which seems like it must've been fun work. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is very fun work. And I think that's well put. I I think, yeah, there, there are, you get different voices from, from the same, you do get different voices from the same theologian. I mean, one of the, one of the geniuses of, of Luther, um, Karlstadt tries to do it, but I'm not sure he's as good at it. And I I hate to say that because I think, you know, Karlstadt is often, unduly um, disregarded as someone who just didn't understand Luther. And, and, and that's not at all true. Um, he, he's a brilliant um, thinker, but one of the things that Luther does really well is he's trained in scholastic debate. He knows how to do it. He, 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 he produces the Heidelberg disputation, the 95 theses. These are carefully constructed documents for theological argument, but he can also then his his genius one of the things that makes him successful in addition to to political support is that he can then translate it into a powerful vernacular treatise mm-hmm. 20 paragraphs often numbers first second third right and that it right and it's it's powerful it's short it explains things well. Of course, he's got, you know, he can throw out some great insults um, and have some entertaining passages. He understands what he's doing um, rhetorically, including around these themes of suffering. He knows how to mock Karlstadt and Munzer's claims to suffering. Oh, yeah, you really, you've, mm-hmm. you've suffered a lot while I was protecting you. Um, <laughs> you know, no one, you know, they whine about their suffering, but no one's laid a finger on them yet. Um, so he's very good rhetorically at, at attacking, um, and, and that's that's part of his genius. So if you think about well, what makes what makes a reform successful? Well, Luther has political support. He has a printing press. He has Lucas Cranach as an ally um, as a printer. That's been covered well in in, in recent scholarship, um, and he's able to use the printing press. Like so, so there's there's a combination of of factors there. But yeah, it was really fun to do these. I don't know that I'd ever. <laughs> I don't know that I'd ever do marginalia again. That was not fun. That that oh, Karlstadt's you know handwritten marginalia in in faded ink. Um, oh, you know, in sloppy writing. Some of it Latin, some of it German, and and uh, yeah, God. God bless Dr. Hans Peter Haslov, who in, in Dresden, who who sat with me and and sort of tried to tried to help me along. But that that is painstaking. That is painstaking work. The handwritten marginalia. Yeah, I'm I trying to imagine margin. just how little it must be and cramped and. Oh, Luther's the worst. Luther, yeah. Luther, no, no, Luther's the worst. He writes. It, young Luther was wrote in just the tiniest letters in the tiniest letters. And I went, um, 
I, I, I went to um, names escaping me. I, I went to look at his uh, his his taller volume, and and the the librarians wouldn't let me look at it because I was just you know a young scholar. They didn't know who I was, so they gave me the microfilm like the negatives. So Luther's, everything was black and you could see Luther's writings in white. It's super tiny. But fortunately, because it's Luther and not Karlstadt, you know, experts have already transcribed it. And, and you know, so that that wasn't as big a deal. But uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, what a it's, nightmare. Like, because if it's the writing's bad enough and then the microfilm uh-huh. that's kind of vaguely shaking all the time. Oh, that's a horrible, <laughs> that was a horrible invention. Um, it's so cool though, right? That you have this relationship with, with these guys. You're like, let me tell you about their handwriting. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's really fun. It, it's, it was a real, it was a really fun project to work on. Right um, on. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What are you working on now? What's next? Um, I am working right now on basically devotion to the passion, it's, so it grows out of this project where I sort of, where I ended this project in a way um, is where this led me was, was a deep interest in how people were taught to do discernment and discipline. So discipline has been a, a huge theme in, in studies of the Reformation uh, or the early modern era in in recent in recent decades it's 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 an era where a lot of scholars have perceived a, a rise in discipline medievalists might object to that um, but but a lot of early modern scholars have perceived this sort of a sort of rise in concern to from church and state to discipline the laity to make sure they they keep in line to make sure they learn their catechism and and what I've become really interested in, because I think it 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 may be at least as historical significant. I'll put it in those modest terms. Um, is is how people were taught to discipline themselves, and how that exercise of of disciplining themselves religiously occurs within this overarching concern for discernment. Everybody needs to understand that if we're going to live in this world. A true and false religion. You're going to live in the Holy Roman Empire in a Lutheran territory, and five miles away, there's a Calvinist territory. Scary. And, right, <laughs> you know, God might rain down lightning on them anytime, but if God doesn't rain down the lightning, you may have to learn how to distinguish what is true from, from what is false because there are false teachers around. So I'm interested in how... In, in how, again, I'm focusing on, on passion literature at this time, but broadly on devotional literature, how that was used to teach people to engage in discernment and to engage in, in practices of, of self-discipline. So, you know, um, how you respond to suffering is a matter of, is a matter of discipline. It's a matter of discipline. Um, and different, different cultures have different expectations and there are different expectations around gender as well, um, down through history in terms of how someone should respond to suffering. So there's a lot of interesting work happening there. And, and I'm interested, um, that's already, there's a lot of interesting scholarship that's, that's been, been done on these themes. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I'm, 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 I'm connecting to that and, and thinking about how this, this, 
you know, moment of division, this need to teach, teach the laity discernment, how it's done through the, the devotional stuff. All right. A little less marginalia, a lot more published work there. Um, yeah, there's, 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 there's less marginalia. I'm always interested in, in, you know, printed marginalia as something that one, that's another thing I look at in this book. Um, and, and I, I do think it's when, when books are printed in the 16th century, in the 17th century, they're printed with marginalia, you know, annotations that, that point the reader, look here, look there. And there is, um, so, so one of the one of the things I've been looking at with the with the research on passion material is how you know in, initially I'm focusing on Lutheran Christians how they were taught to read the present through the passion. They were basically to take this story of Jesus being crucified, hold it up, and use it as a lens for viewing their world. Right? Who is Caiaphas? Caiaphas is the Pope. Who are the scribes? The scribes are the scholastic theologians. Who are the Pharisees? Those are the monks. Um, who's Pilate? Pilate is those rulers within the Holy Roman Empire who know they're doing wrong, but nevertheless side with the Catholic Church, right? Everybody has a 16th century analog, so it becomes this, this key way of reading the present, of discerning your world, and sort of, and, and of course, the big thing they're trying to do is to convince these people that even though they are weaker... One thing we forget about is when the war did finally come and in the Schmalkau War comes 1546, 1547, <laughs> the Lutherans get their butts kicked um, quickly and badly, right? Even though you're weaker, even though you've lost this war, um, you know, look at the passion. Clearly, that means God is on our side after all. Are you being crucified? Good for you. And that's a hard <laughs> argument to make, but, you know, they're to use the... the, the um, to use the passion that way and oh yeah i was talking about printed marginalia right one of the printed marginalia that i recall is there's this long section comparing the pope to judas and in 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 luther's um i think it's in the house postals and then there's a marginalia and then just in case you aren't going to wade through all that small print there's a big marginalia there that says the pope is a judas and so, okay. I do not endorse this anti-Catholicism, but uh, you know, I. It, but TLDR, the Pope is a Judas. So just in case you miss it, um, yeah. <laughs> and so they, there's that. That's a powerful thing. That's a powerful thing that 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 use of printed marginalia. So that that remains an interest. But written marginalia, I, you know, Fair. I don't know that my eyesight is good enough. <laughs> Yeah, that's a young man's game right there. Um, All right. I have taken up a bunch of your time already. So I just have one more thing I want to talk about before I let you go, which is that you end the book with an epilogue, um, which is, you know, a little bit of an outlier in the world of nonfiction publishing. Uh, Will you tell us what you do with this epilogue? What's the point of that? What is the point of the epilogue? Well, that's a good good question. Um, It's delightful. (laughs) It's it's a deliberately sort of open ended. Um, it, it's a deliberately sort of open ended um, attempt just to you know provoke some thought, provoke some reflection. One of the big arguments recently, um, at, 
As the 2017 anniversary came, um, and you know, and all these books on Reformation and Luther flowed out, um, and I actually did a review essay of, of six different books. And, and one of the things that was, one of the common themes across those books was the failure of the Reformation. What that means essentially is that, you know, Luther and, and other reformers, they set out to reform the church, reform the church universal. What happens? They end up with a parochial church. They, they, they don't reform the church universal. They end up with a, you know, they end up dividing Christianity and, and forming, you know, churches that are confined to distinct um, territories, distinct parts of Europe. They end up create instead of a universal reform, they end up with a, they end up with a parochial church. And certainly that's, um, certainly that's true. Certainly that's true. And there are a lot of people who now see that as a root of secularization. Um, now that's a really complicated term to introduce at the end of the interview, um, but um, it's a big, it's a big term. But the, but the idea is that because there's these competing views of religion, what you eventually get is 17th century moving forward. Eh, they're probably all wrong, um, or who knows which one is right. You get skepticism, and you get you know. Uh, you get toleration, of, of course, as well. You get separation of church and state. You get privatization of religion. There's a lot of there's a lot of argument that's 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 increasingly rooting that in the Reformation, and yeah, I, I, I certain I kind of you know wonder about gaps in that story and, and want to encourage, you, you know, I don't have a definitive alternative history to leave you with here, um, but want to encourage some, some broader reflection. For one, you know, clearly the recent scholarly focus on, you know, secularization or religious violence and tolerance, isn't that, sh that's shaped by our own context, we're asking questions that are politically relevant for us, which of course scholars do. Um, but in a different context, you might ask a different question. Where is the Lutheran tradition flourishing, for instance? In Africa, not in North America. Does the story of Luther ushering in secularization make sense there? Probably not. Um, so, and, 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 but the big thing I leave us with in the, the epilogue is well, how would you define success or failure here? And that requires thinking about what the reformers themselves um, wanted to achieve in the first place. And they had very realistic expectations about people, very um, profound fears of deception. That's, again, what the suffering thing was all about. Why do you need to suffer? Because otherwise, you can't receive truth if you're going to define it according to what you think is good. Um, what you want. Uh, you need to suffer to, um, to get yourself out of the way so that you can receive truth from God and then live by it. Um, I, I don't think that, I, I don't think that, I think what they wanted is a complicated question. I think what they wanted is a complicated question. And I, I think that so much of what they wanted to accomplish in terms of Teaching people, say, discernment and discipline happens through devotional literature and sermons. And I think we've scarcely begun to, to do, do the work 
to to understand the the influence of that stuff. So I just think there's a lot more there's a lot more territory to cover before we think in terms of 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 success or failure to the extent that those things are of course helpful categories at, at all of course few few historical events turn out just as well as the actors intended so again it's just a, a an attempt to encourage some reflection and, and and encourage some some further scholarship some yeah a reconsideration and what it also does i feel is um Remind us how something so deeply historical, we're talking hundreds of years, like how, how, uh, how important it remains, how relevant it remains, and how, um, how we can study this for our own answers, you know, <laughs> that, that, it, that it is in fact legitimate to think about the Reformation as a personal event, mm-hmm. right, or as, as something that it can affect us, that, that remains a part of our understanding of being a person in the world and our interaction with the divine. Um, and so it's a really nice, you know, it's just a very nice to be reminded, uh, how very important what this, this work is, like how important the past is still, and that it's, it's with us as good as an historian. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It, 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 of course shapes us both in the sense of shaping the world in which we live. Um, and it, you know, the study of it shapes us. The study of it shapes us because we take ourselves and the things that we care about, and then you have this chance to encounter people who didn't necessarily care about the same things in the same way. And and I think it really opens us up to understanding who we are. At least I think that I hope the best history. Well, I I I know the best history opens us up to uh, to understanding who we are. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for joining me uh, this beautiful late November day. Um, I guess it's your morning, my evening. And so I wish you a very, very good day. And I will talk for the next book. Thank you. Thank you for having me um, and, and have a good evening.